Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the podcast, is for education only. Some of the subject matter could be triggering for those that are newly grieving or in a poor state of mental health. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. Hello, I'm Elaine Lindsay and this is Suicide Zen Forgiveness. And today I'm not going to have a guest. Today I'm delving into more of a a mental health space. I want to talk about you know, finally um, finding out, I guess, the beginnings of, uh, what should I call it, some of the limiting beliefs that have sort of uh, fueled how I relate, how I have or have not dealt with situations uh, over my lifetime. If uh, you've been here before, you know that I started Suicide Zen Forgiveness uh, as a way to pay back my friend Andrea, who left me the, I guess, best worst gift you could ever have when she took her own life uh, back on New Year's Eve, uh, 1971. And today's episode is, I guess, about why until last year, I didn't really talk about the fact that not only am I a survivor of suicide by way of being adjacent and and losing my dear friend, but I'm also a suicide attempt survivor. And I can't say once. I have to say, after a number of incredibly traumatic experiences in my life, and uh, tens, tens and tens and tens of surgeries, there were many, many times where I just wanted it all to stop. The pain, the poking around, the surgeries, the blood work, the everything. I just needed it to stop. And running through the tapestry that that is my life is a thread of a form of suicide ideation that not only did I not ever speak about, I never really told anyone about some of the very dark thoughts I had. And this actually goes back to before Andrea died. But I'm going to tell you the story now because just a few weeks ago, in passing, we were talking about the podcast and and different things that I've been doing in the past few years. And once again, I said to someone, well, you know, you know, back then when I was a kid, 
for a teenager, you certainly didn't tell people that you had any off thoughts or you were ever suicidal because they'd lock you up. And before it was out of my mouth, I thought, you know, I think it's about time I actually explored this. I know back then, we're talking the late 60s, early 70s. Back then, there was a very definite chance of you being locked up. And I'm actually going to read you some information about that. But how did it become sort of that that weird background song in my life that made a point of having me keep my feelings, my thoughts, all of it very, very close to my chest. I didn't share my feelings. I didn't share the thoughts I had. I didn't even share those attempts even when it ended me up in hospital. I quite frankly lied about how I got there. Not something I'm proud of, but that too is fact. And it all comes back to uh, a young man named Michel. You see, when I was 12 and heading into high school, my parents sent me to a Catholic school, a parochial school, Notre Dame. It was an all-girls school. And truth be told, it was an all-girls school that was attached to an all-boys school that had tunnels between the two schools. So it certainly wasn't Siberia or, you know, somewhere out in the the realms of, of elsewhere. But it wasn't where my friends were going. It wasn't close to where I lived. Matter of fact, it took three buses and at least an hour to get to school every day. And that didn't count winter. And every day when I took the first bus, I would change buses at this corner of Heron Road in Ottawa, actually where the post office, uh, one of the main buildings is, uh, at Riverside and Heron. Coming down Riverside Drive from where I lived, right near Mooney's Bay, which was a, a beach that all of us went to, there was a home back then they called for wayward boys. And in that home, that's where Michelle lived. I met Michelle, who was probably about the same age as I was, in grade nine. He took the same bus as I did, well, the second and the third bus, because he went to Canterbury, which was a very artsy school. It was farther than my school, but along the same bus line. And getting to know Michelle, over that grade nine and then grade 10 seasons. I learned that, that he was pretty smart. Um, he was very small for his age and 
he was in that home because he'd run away an awful lot. You know, we didn't talk about things back then quite as much. But from what he did say, we understood that the man in the family, and I don't remember if it was actually his father or stepfather, but uh, he beat Michelle's mom, Michelle, and his siblings. And it caused him to run away a lot. And I know he, he certainly was not an easy child because I knew that, that he stole and there were other things going on as well. But he was a smart kid, as smart as I was and went to a regular high school. And for two years, we took the bus together, week in and week out. It was the odd day or so that he wasn't there when he'd perhaps taken off again. But those are things that happen to people quite often when they have difficult childhoods. I didn't know anything about that. I had two very loving parents who were you know, run-of-the-mill, ordinary people that loved their two kids, worked hard. My father was in the Air Force. My mom worked in the library in a government office. And at the end of grade 10, grade, going into grade 11, I was 15. And I had been every Sunday going to a town about 45 minutes away from Ottawa. They had a place that was known then as the Rideau Regional Hospital School. It was a massive, massive building without buildings. And it was on a huge, huge property. And driving up in the bus, because on Sundays we would get on a school bus and the volunteers would go out there. And that school bus would bring us up this huge circular driveway and drop us at the front door. When you went in that front door, you could look down that hallway, which seemed to go on forever. I can remember being told, I believe the hallway was an eighth of a mile long. It was just immense. I had never seen anything like it. After volunteering for those couple of years, I was offered a special dispensation from our provincial government. Because see, back then, in 1970, 1969, 70, they uh, didn't even give you a social insurance number until you were 16. And I wasn't. So it meant in order to work at the facility for the summer, I had to have this special dispensation that allowed me to not only work there, but to live on the property in a school portable with the other people that were working there. Truth be told, they were all 17 to 19 years old. And for the entire summer, each of us made $400, which back then seemed like just 
absolutely out of this world. It was a lot of money. I had my bronze in swimming, so I got to teach swimming classes. And I worked in the uh, adult and youth training units. They were some of the wings that were right close to the front door when you went in. In my second year, I actually worked at what was called female admission. And it was at the very back of the building. The very, very far end of that building. I remember trudging down that hallway every day. And the first year I was there, about the fourth day, I had gone to the, the adult training unit, which when you were facing in from the front door was on the left-hand side. I think it was the second uh, set of doors and stairs. And I went out to the yard. There were kind of like schoolyards in, in each of these segments. The, the main building was that central long, long hallway with um, arms coming off every so often that stacked up uh, like, you know, uh, they were like constant T's running down. I don't know how else to explain that. Uh, that main hall had, you know, arms coming off each side on both sides of the building. And some of them went to education units. Some of them were for much younger children. Some of them were for older adults that had been there for a very long time. And the adult, uh, I think, early training unit where I had gone to the yard that day, I had been sent to bring something to um, one of the, the orderlies or interns. And as I came through that yard, I was quite shocked to see Michelle, the young guy that I met every day at the bus stop, was standing at the other end of this yard. And so I went up to him and said, hey, like, how did you get a job here? Because he was the same age as me. And he said he didn't have a job there. He was living there now. I really didn't know what to say to him. I was so confused and so shocked because it didn't make sense to me. What would he be doing there? The Rideau Regional Hospital School. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Give you an idea of why this confused me so much. The Rideau Regional Hospital School, located in Smith Falls, Ontario, opened in 1951. It was also known later as the Rideau Regional Centre, and when it first opened, it was known as the Ontario Hospital School. There were similar residential institutions throughout Ontario here in Canada. It was designed to house individuals who were deemed to have cognitive and physical disabilities. Individuals could be admitted by parents, guardians, training schools, or the Children's Aid Society. 
You see, Michelle was sent there by the Children's Aid Society. And, of course, his parents signed off on it. That giant building we were in had a lot of interconnected buildings. It was what they called a, a full-in institution. It was a swimming pool. As I said, I got to be the lifeguard there. It was a gym, gymnasium, dining halls, a huge kitchen, a kind of off bowling alley, and a 600-seat theater. It wasn't 600 seats early on. There were woodworking and other vocational shops. There were classrooms and medical and dental facilities on campus, as well as shared rooms that housed the residents. At its peak, Rito Regional's population exceeded 2,600 people. That was in 1955. That was the year I was born, actually. Now, even though it was only built to accommodate 1,500 people, when you think of that, you can imagine just how crowded it was. And by the mid-70s, after I worked there, the Ontario government operated 16 of these facilities across the province. Because in the 50s and 60s, there were very few community services or supports available for individuals with developmental disabilities and their families. As a matter of fact, as that began changing in the 70s, when schools and workshops and other community support for people with developmental disabilities were introduced, Rito Regional started a program here in Ottawa. And in the morning, I got to participate in the program. In the morning, we had kind of like a well, I guess it would be a forerunner to a daycare. A downtown Ottawa at McNabb School, we used a classroom, and kids would come there, and we would keep them uh, amused with games and, and exercises and gym activities. And after lunch, we would do home visits. This was the beginning of respite, actually, in Ottawa. A home visit meant that you would go to somebody's home. One of the young people that I work with was a little girl with Down syndrome, and she lived in Manor Park. I would go, her name was Claire, and I would take her swimming and spend the afternoon with her to give her mom a little bit of a break. And there were five of us who did that uh, in that second summer. Gotten a little away from what the point was here, but I thought it important to mention that Rito Regional wasn't all bad, although a lot of people will say that. And it was, in fact, one of the last three facilities of its kind in Ontario. It finally closed its doors on the 31st of March in 2009. Back to that first year that I got to live on campus and work there. I learned some very valuable lessons and a lot of it was through Michelle, that young boy that I used to take the bus with. As you see, that first month that he was there, I can look back now and understand that it was 
basically the light going out in his eyes. Week after week, things got a little less like Michelle. He wasn't as boisterous. He wasn't as open. He didn't talk as much. By the end of the summer, Michelle was just a shell of who he'd been. And by that second year, when I went to work in Smith's Falls before coming back to Ottawa, Michelle I saw that year was nothing like the young man I had met at the bus stop every weekday for two years. And through research and learning over the years after that, I came to understand that when we're put in situations that aren't ideal, we don't rise to the top. We tend to lower ourselves to the lowest common denominator. Meaning rather than bring everyone else up to his level, it seemed that Michel regressed to being less than who he was. And the second week that I was in Smith Falls, that second year, I remember coming home and telling my mother how very, very angry I was with God. I was brought up Catholic. As I said, I didn't want to go to the Catholic school. Well, now, I didn't want to be there at all. I wanted nothing to do with my religion. I wanted nothing to do with my God. I had an aunt who was really, really ill her whole life, and she never did anything terrible to anybody. And young Michelle, he was dealt a horrible hand as a child. And what I took away from that was that you didn't want to step out of line. You didn't want to tell people about any bad thoughts. You certainly didn't want to let anybody know that you had suicidal thoughts. Because, hey, they'd lock you up. And that wasn't something fanciful I pulled out of thin air. That was something I saw happen to somebody I knew. Remember I said, you could be admitted by a parent guardian, a training school, or the Children's Aid Society. I had thought they were there to help children. In my teenage mind, this was not help. This was not the way to go. This was an absolute horror show. Therefore, I needed to keep my thoughts to myself. I needed to fight my own battles. And I needed to make sure I did not tell anyone how I felt. And that continued right up until 2013, when I started breaking out of that shell and actually began to tell my story. So here we are in 2022. I now spend my time doing this podcast, this Suicide Zen Forgiveness. I finally forgiven myself 
And I suppose in a way, forgiven God, the universe, whatever you want to call that larger entity than ourselves. Because I believe we have a hand in what happens to us in this human experience. And I believe so fully now that we need to reach out to others because no person is an island. I know I paraphrase that, but no matter man, woman, LGBTQIA+, whomever you are as a human being, don't fight your battles alone. Don't be left with horrible thoughts. And don't just stay in your room. If you're having a really bad day, reach out to somebody, anybody. Go out on the street and talk to someone. Because trust me, somebody will listen. Just don't keep it all bottled up inside. Because it's really not good for you. And the good news is these institutions don't exist anymore. So I'm letting go of my fear of people locking me up. And I also know for sure that sharing our story lightens our burden. And getting it out there takes the big bad out of it. And I now know that people can reach out to me and I to them if I need to talk to someone. So I now know where my secretiveness comes from. I now know why I always thought I had to go it alone. And I now know that that's not true. So I thank you very much for listening. And I look forward to chatting with you again in all probability next time with a guest as we cover suicide, then forgiveness, mental health and wellness. And on that note, please make the very best of your today every day. Remember, you're not alone. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you on page one in the search results.